We are in John 18 today. We're continuing through the, walking through the, the book of John that we started back in the fall, took a break from, came back to again. We're leading up to the cross of Christ. We're leading up to the, the empty tomb of Christ. And, and we're, we're getting down to the nitty, nitty gritty with things. Um, uh, I've got a lot of slides today. Jeff's, I've, I've told him though, we're going to double his pay for the day uh, because he's going to have to work so hard back there. The, the sermon note sheet, some of you maybe don't use those, but I'd encourage you to grab one and a pen. I want to kind of use the, the fill in the blanks today as a, as a way to just kind of learn from this story. And you see that I've kind of titled this, this message, this chapter, Who Are You in This Story? And, it, and there's a lot here. So we got, we got to kind of dive into things. Last Sunday, Daniel got us up to this point. John 17 is, is Jesus' prayer where he, he really showed what was on his mind uh, before he uh, went to the cross. And Daniel pointed out there that Jesus wanted us to see and know his glory, uh, wanted us to, to find and experience eternal life in him. And he prayed very pointedly, that he wanted us all, all of his believers, to be united, to be completely one. And that's where we are in verse 1 of John 18. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app, uh, it's going to be on the screen as well too today. Verse 1, when he had finished praying, so there we are, John 17 leads into John 18. Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. As I read through John 18 and preparing, knowing I was going to preach today, I was challenged by what we can learn from each person or each group of people uh, that we encounter here in, in John 18. Um, so that's why I asked that question, who are you in this story? Because I, I reflect on, and, and when I have you fill in the blanks here, if you have the sermon notes, it's going to be a reflection of, of what what that group of people or that person did that was that maybe not in step with the will of God or what was in step with the will of God. And we're going to kind of learn from both of those things today. So I ask you to follow along with that. So verse 2 now. Now Judas who betrayed him knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. It said he went to the garden, Gethsemane, the garden or olive grove, a very familiar meeting place for them and it was familiar for Judas and we don't know why Judas did what he did. Was his betrayal for money? We know he got some money. Was it for fear for his life? Was it some other reason? Was he just trying to expedite things? And, and in, your, in your sermon notes, if you're choosing to follow along there, gonna, we're going to fill in some blanks today. Um, surely you and I wouldn't put self-preservation or financial gain ahead of Jesus, would we? And certainly we would never betray or deny Jesus for those reasons. We would never do that, would we? Verse 3, so Judas came to the garden and guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees, they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Torches and weapons. How many, how many movies come to mind? Maybe it's a cartoon or maybe it's a movie. Torches and weapons are never a good thing. It's never a positive thing, is it, when a gang comes with torches and weapons. Um, the chief priests and the Pharisees, the Jewish religious establishment, the ruling uh, council of the Jews, the ones who had opposed Jesus from the beginning of his ministry were the very ones that were that people look to for guidance, for direction, for truth. 
But those people, those leaders allowed personal desires and personal gain and personal security to direct their actions. And I'll ask the same question that I ask about Judas. We would never let those things stand in our way of, of accepting or coming to Jesus, would we? Let's keep rolling along. Verse 4. <clears throat> Jesus, knowing that all, was, all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. And this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one that you gave me. Notice the, the two times, the three times recorded by John that Jesus said, I am he. The word he, I understand, is not included in the Greek. So as he had done many times, Jesus was making a clear statement about who he was. And in this case, making a clear statement to the Jewish leaders that he was the I am. He was making it clear without a doubt to make sure maybe that there was no backing down on their part, that this would be like rubbing, it would be like rubbing salt in the wound uh, that was a, a festering wound, that I am claiming to be God in the flesh. So now the plot thickens in this, in this night before Jesus was crucified. Now, uh, in your note sheet near the top of the, the first page there, I've included the other references in Matthew, Mark, and Luke because John here in this chapter doesn't record everything we know about this night. But I, I, may, ref, I may reference some of those things a little bit, but I encourage you to, to go home and read those other accounts. We're at verse 10 now. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his, his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. John didn't include that Jesus healed the, the servant's ear. Luke records that. But before we go any further, I want, I want to make some observations. Notice Peter's willingness to fight for Jesus. His willingness, uh, his loyalty was commendable. Now we know, if we know the story, those things rapidly change regarding, regarding Peter and his, and his willingness to fight for Jesus. But God's battles are not won with man's weapons. And that's what, that's what Jesus points out here. And I, and I want to jump to a, a, a scripture that talks about that very directly in 2 Corinthians 10. And we find there it says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. And we know from reading the, 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 the New Testament especially, but all of the Bible, we know that God's world, God's kingdom is different than what we encounter day by day so many times. And in Ephesians 6, we're, we're told about some of, this, some of this 
battle that's going on around us and, and how to be prepared for it. Our only weapon is the Word of God, which leads to knowing the truth, which then leads, when we know the truth, we lead to, through Christ, a righteousness that is, that is not our own, that comes from Christ himself. And Mike mentioned that in his communion time. And we know a peace that passes understanding. That's the way things work in the kingdom of God. Let's go back to John 18. We're, we're ready for the, the last part of verse 11 now. Jesus provided the ultimate example of how to be victorious in his, in his kingdom. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Is what he said in, in, in verse 11. Just a little earlier, recorded in the other Gospels, Jesus had prayed to his Father asking if the cup that he had to drink which was his mission, his purpose, his going to the cross. Could, he asked if it could be taken away from him. Yet he determined in that prayer, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Jesus, the man, didn't have to go through with this. He could have slipped away into the wilderness. He could have avoided arrest. He could have set up a carpenter shop and <laughs> went about his went about his, adult, his human life, rather. Of course, that's not what he did. Jesus knew, that, knew God's will and was determined to fulfill it. And that's the way to achieve victory in the kingdom of God. And it, and it wasn't just a surrender, like in, as in, oh, well, I can't do anything about it. This is my lot in life. I've got to go be hung on a cross. It wasn't that kind of surrender, but it was a resolve. He was resolved. He was firmly determined to bring glory to God by being obedient to his, to his heavenly father. The Jews were living under Roman rule. And they had their own laws, religious laws. But they often had no ability under living under Roman rule to carry out the penalties, especially the penalty as severe as putting someone to death. And, and I, I think it was a combination of Roman soldiers and Jewish temple guards who, who were present at Jesus' arrest. Because of how popular Jesus had become and the Jewish leaders were, were uh, just uncomfortable with the whole situation, to, to say the least, they needed to arrest Jesus quickly and quietly to avoid a, a riot and that's why they needed an insider. They needed, they needed Judas to give them the right opportunity. They, the fact that this happened at night was not just by chance. It was intentional. The chief priests sent armed guards because they expected trouble from the disciples. But Jesus did the unexpected, as he always did. He allowed the arrest to happen. The time was right for him to move toward the cross to fulfill prophecy. His firm determination was to fulfill his purpose to honor and obey his father. And we can learn from him. Let's go to verse 15 now. Simon Peter and the other disciple were following Jesus. 
Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back and spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter, Peter in. You aren't one of the man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and the officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Now, there in verse 15, the, the other disciple was likely John. It's, it's unknown how John was known by the high priest, but he, he was evidently, and he was able to, to gain access for himself and for Peter into the courtyard to be, near, to be near where this initial questioning of Jesus was taking place. Evidently, all of the, the rest of the 12 had scattered, but these two were trying to stay close. And, and, and let me just note, too, that yes, the others had scattered. They had abandoned Jesus, but it may not have been a complete uh, uh, turning their back on him or a, a, a spiritual failure. Um, because remember, in, in verse 8, we already read, Jesus had said to the, the ones that, that came to get him in the garden, if you're looking for me, let these men go. So, God, so Jesus had said, let them go, and, and, and they went. But here we have a prophecy that, that is being fulfilled or begins to be fulfilled. Because back in the upper room, Peter had boldly said to Jesus, will you really lay down your life for me? Or, or he said, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, will you really, Peter, lay down your life for me? And he said, I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So Peter denied here being Jesus' disciple. This was his first denial. Verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Verse 20, Jesus speaks. I've, I've spoken openly, uh, openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I've, I've, I've said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is that the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? Verse 23, if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. First of all, there seems to be two high priests involved here if you read this. Were there two high priests? Well, I, I believe the story is that Annas had been the high priest, but he wasn't the current high priest. Caiaphas was, and Caiaphas was his son-in-law. But, but Annas, even though he had no authority, was evidently greatly respected by the Jewish leaders, and probably some of them still considered him to be the high priest. So Jesus being brought before the ex-high priest was, was sort of a pre-trial and then John doesn't go into detail about when Jesus went to Caiaphas. The other Gospels do that, and you can look that up. But in this Jewish part of Jesus' trial, both Annas and Caiaphas questioned Jesus in hopes of uh, getting him to condemn himself by what he said before their court. And they even brought witnesses, we're told, in the other Gospels who who 
gave false testimony against Jesus. And it says, it makes a point of saying that they didn't even agree with what they said. So it was pretty much, uh, uh, you know, unbelievable. But it really didn't matter. The religious leading council had their minds made up. They didn't accept, they didn't care who Jesus was. They just wanted to be rid of him. And in here in these verses, Jesus' response was simply to say, I haven't been hiding. I, I've spoken in public. Why, why don't you ask the others what I've taught? Many times people uh, reject Jesus and his teaching, but they've never really listened to what he said. They know about Jesus, but they don't really know Jesus. And they don't know his truth. They don't know his way. They don't know his life. So after Jesus arrests and being handcuffed, bound, it says, the mistreatment escalates. The slap that he received uh, at that initial time was just the beginning of how bad he was treated that night. It only got worse. And let me, let me just say, too, when you read all the gospel accounts together, the, the order of events that night were, I, I believe this, the, these. Jesus was taken to Annas. Then he was taken to Caiaphas. And then before the whole Jewish council. And then to Pilate, which we're getting ready to read. And then to Herod, who was visiting Jerusalem, and he was only interested in Jesus performing a miracle. And then back to Pilate again. What a night. It took all night. Let's go back to verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment a rooster began to crow. We can talk a big game about anything. I'm pretty good at that. Just opening my mouth and acting like I know something and saying all kinds of stuff. But the, the expression when the rubber meets the road comes to mind when I think about the story of Peter here. We find out what we're really made of when we're really put to the test, when the rubber meets the road. Peter, bold and self-assured one moment, became timid, frightened, unconfident, scared in the next. Sometimes, like Peter, we, we talk a good game, but we don't back it up with action. We're all talk and no action and when I was preparing this week, I thought about talk and no action and a couple of other ways to say that came to mind. So I actually Googled idioms for all talk and no action. And, and uh, Jeff's going to put a couple of those up. We can talk the talk, but we can't walk the walk. That's one that's pretty common, right? All bark and no bite. You maybe use that one. We can hear that. Here's a couple more that are not as common to me, but I liked them. All glitter and no gold. All smoke and no fire. These last two had to come straight out of this, the state of Texas. 
The next one, all sizzle and no steak. But here's my favorite, and I'm, I'm going to try to remember this and use this one sometime. All hat and no cattle. I like that one. No matter how we say it, though, and you fill in your blank on your sheet however you want to, regardless of how we say it, often regarding Jesus, we're pretty good at talk but without action. And remember what James taught us in his letter in the New Testament, that faith without works, faith without action is dead. It's, it doesn't mean much. In Peter's defense, he was confused. He had tried to defend Jesus and was scolded for missing the, the mark on that. But now he's just unwilling to engage, unwilling to stand boldly for the one he claimed to love and trust. I can relate to that. And I'm assuming you can too. Sometimes we can talk a good game. We can stand or sit up in front of a church of people and we can tell you the way it ought to be following Jesus. And then when the rubber meets the road, sometimes it's very difficult to do that. We can learn from Peter's example. Pastor Chuck Swindoll wrote this. I don't have it for you on the screen, but listen to what Swindoll wrote. I am glad that when God paints portraits of his men and women, he paints them warts and all. He doesn't ignore their weaknesses or hide their frailties. Aren't you glad that that's what our Bible gives us, is real people trying to love and follow and honor God? And whether it's Abraham lying about his wife, Sarah, to save his own hide, or whether it's King David and his failings, or Elijah and his depression, or Peter, who's, if you know the rest of the story, his commitment to Christ would rebound, or maybe it's Peter being weak and afraid instead of being strong and fearless. Aren't you glad that God told us the whole story? Peter's story and the many others in the Bible help us in our own faith journey. Not as an excuse to waver in our faith, like, well, Peter did it, so I can too. But, but I think both a heads up to the reality of the spiritual warfare that we face and also as, as an example for us of forgiveness and, and the encouragement to press on. Jesus had warned Peter in Luke 22, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And, and we know the rest of Peter's story, or maybe you do. Don't ever doubt or forget that when we, when we wear the name of Jesus, we're under attack. We're in a spiritual battle. Verse 28 now, back to John 18. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace to the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. 
Did your parents ever say something like, nothing good happens after midnight? Because it's true, basically. The Jewish leaders were sneaking around under the cover of darkness and away from those who supported Jesus, all with the goal of creating doubt and suspicion and putting an end to Jesus' influence. Some of these leaders were no doubt uh, trying to hold on to their own power and privilege. Some were probably legitimately trying to stop what they thought was, was sacrilege. They, that's the only way they could see it. They were probably trying to do that, and some a little bit of both, no doubt. But Jesus knew, and now we also know, know that as it says in Isaiah 53, it was God's will to crush him. And we sang about that right before sermon time here. Nevertheless, the Jewish leaders were trying to do something in secret out of the public eye. And I guess the lesson, and you see what, what's on the screen there, that I take from this for myself is if I'm tempted to do something in secret, I shouldn't do it. And we know that. I'm not talking about planning a birthday party in secret. You know, you know what this is talking about. The high priest and the other Jewish leaders were the spiritual leaders. They were the spiritual shepherds, or they were supposed to be. Fulfilling their role as spiritual leaders meant taking responsibility to guide those uh, looking to them, both in knowing God and in, and in honoring God. Failing to fulfill their role as spiritual leader earned Jesus' harshest rebuke. Of all the red letter words in the Gospels, the harshest words from Jesus were for the spiritual leaders. Their unbelief and their making it hard for uh, people to come to, to know God and follow him, to follow, to know who Jesus was resulted in Jesus' harshest criticism. He called them at different times blind guides. He called them whitewashed tombs. He called them hypocrites. hypocrites. He linked them to Satan. Many of us have roles of leadership, spiritual leadership. Parents, especially fathers, we're spiritual leaders. We have a role and we have a responsibility. Bible teachers, church leaders, ministry leaders, all have a duty as spiritual leaders to guide those under their care. All who wear the name of Christ have some varying degree maybe of, leader, of leadership. And we have a responsibility to lead well. And, and before we move on from this, do you see the, the clear irony of the Jewish leaders' actions here? They're having this so-called trial in the dark in order to kill Jesus. But they're sure to keep... The, you go back and look at those verses that are, that are up there. They're, they're sure to keep the rule regaining, uh, regarding remaining spiritually clean... But they're rushing to get the job done of killing Jesus so that they could still participate in the, in the, the Sabbath and feast. 
And, and just in the last uh, couple of weeks in Connections class, we've looked at two cases that come to mind that are exactly like this. The, the lame man healed at the pool of Bethesda and the, the site just this morning, our class uh, topic was the site restored of the man born blind. Um, and the religious leaders were only able to see that Jesus didn't keep the Sabbath laws. Completely blinded to the fact that Jesus had cared for and healed and, and taken care of the needs of, of people. And a, a story came to mind when I, was, when I was thinking about that this week that I, I want to share just briefly. It's not exactly the same situation, but it's a similar enough that it, that it came to my mind and I want to share it with you about a, a, a spiritual leader and the way they responded in a situation. And it wasn't at this church, but it, and it, and it was, didn't even involve me directly, but I, I knew this spiritual leader in this church. And a youth minister had come, and he had been there for a while, and he was, he was doing some good in youth ministry. And in particular, he told me this story, and, and, and I haven't forgotten it. He, he reached out to a young man that had never gone to church in his life, and his, his situation was a rough one. And he had gotten this young man, to, this teenage boy, to come on a couple of Wednesday nights to youth group, but he had encouraged him to come on a Sunday morning. And on a Sunday morning, the boy showed up a few minutes early and sat in the back row and was wearing a cap. And the youth minister had, didn't even know he was there yet. He had been teaching downstairs, hadn't, hadn't come upstairs yet. But what happened was uh, one of the elders of the church came from class and walked in, saw the boy sitting in the back row, didn't know him from Adam, wearing a cap. And he walked up behind him, pulled the cap off the boy's head, threw it into the pew and said, we don't wear hats in church. And like I said, this is a story I heard from that youth minister. And I honestly don't know how it all played out with this young man over time. Um, here's the reason why I share that with you. I've never done that, but I think I've done other stuff like that. Sometimes I can see, can't see the forest for the trees regarding my own sin. And I, and I doubt that I'm the only one who can learn from that example. And, 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 and as tragic as that was, it's, it's helped me because I haven't forgotten that. Sometimes we can be blind to real needs because we're trying to keep our other rules. Being full of truth but exhibiting no grace. And when we do that, we join the group that missed the mark regarding Jesus. All right, we got, we got to move on here. Verse 29. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Notice that they didn't answer his question. Pilate was the governor of Judea appointed by Rome to keep order. He was the, a prefect, a military leader, and by all historical accounts, despised the Jews. He was assigned this duty that he probably didn't even want. And it's important to know that the Jewish leaders very likely felt the same way about Pilate. Despised him, probably. And notice the way they responded to Pilate's question. Their response probably conveyed their contempt for him. They avoided saying, well, he's blasphemous, because what would Pilate's reaction have been? I don't, I don't care. Uh, you know, I'm not a Jew. 
Verse 31, let's keep going. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, but we have no right to execute anyone. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus had told numerous times that he would be lifted up. Jesus knew that he was to be hung on a Roman cross, not stoned by the, by the Jewish leaders. So it was, it, was, it was really about prophecy here. They needed Rome, but actually it was all part of God's plan that, that the Romans be the one to execute Jesus. Verse 33 and following. Pilate then went back inside the palace and he summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. No doubt Pilate had heard of the king Jesus, but ultimately I think he was disinterested in Jewish debate. He couldn't, he couldn't care less. But evidently, he wanted to follow the guidelines for his office or at least showing some sign of fairness. He needed to find out what Jesus had done to elevate uh, the situation to the point of the leaders wanting him killed. And Jesus gets a chance to define his kingdom here, maybe as an attempt to engage Pilate in a deeper conversation regarding who he was and his purpose. We don't know. And then Jesus' powerful statement that he said that his purpose is to reveal truth and that those who really care about knowing what truth is, they listen to him. They, they know him. They believe in him. And they follow him. And Pilate, Pilate's not willing to engage in that. His famous line, what is truth, is very telling of the culture then. It's certainly telling of our culture now and is a whole sermon in and of itself. The all-too-common response to biblical truth is sarcasm. It was then, and it certainly is now in our culture, isn't it? And we can't tell for sure if Pilate's what is truth was sarcastic or maybe a lament of his own, of his own culture, of his own life, maybe. We don't know. Okay, the last two or three verses here. Second part of verse 38 with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover? Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in the uprising. And the other gospel, uh, and even the next chapter, John 19, give us more details of Pilate's interaction with Jesus and more about Barabbas. But even in these verses, we see Pilate making an attempt to wash his hands of the Jesus situation. And in Matthew's gospel, he, he literally did that, I guess. He washed his hands to demonstrate, I'm washing my hands of this deal. I find no fault in him. Did Pilate really care about the truth? I think he did, at least, at least somewhat. Did he care about Jesus' guilt or innocence? 
some, but not enough to make the right call in his position. Have you ever known the right thing to do but didn't have the nerve to do it? You can fill in the blank there however you want. The guts to do it, the strength to do it, the courage to do it, the wisdom to do it. Sure you have. And related to Jesus, maybe we might say the faith to do it, the allegiance to Jesus to do it. Why not? What, what, held, what holds you back? Fear? Intimidation? Just wanting to avoid difficulty? I've been there. Pilate took the easy way out. He just couldn't do it. He couldn't stand up to the crowd. Chose not to stand up to the crowd. He didn't have enough backbone. And of course, he he didn't know God. He didn't know who was standing in front of him. He didn't know the truth. He He didn't find out the truth. He ignored it. And then Barabbas. Other accounts describe him as an insurrectionist and a murderer. Jesus was not guilty. Barabbas, whatever he had done, was guilty. The innocent was to die and the guilty was to go free. Does that sound like anything you've heard before? If you're following along in your note sheet, we've got some blanks to fill in. I'm about to wrap up here. Stories take us deeper than just facts. We get to picture things in our mind, and we read this chapter 18, and we can, we can kind of picture what's going on. And we can learn from every, we can learn from this Bible story, we can learn from every Bible story, every Bible character. And as you and I consider where we fit into this story, Again, my goal today was to do more than just know the facts of Jesus, uh, the night of Jesus' arrest, but to learn from it. A repentant Peter was transformed into a person that Christ could use to build his church. We didn't get there in this chapter, but we're going to get there. At times, we may fail to, to speak up regarding our faith in Jesus but we learn from Peter's life and, and so many other accounts in Scripture that a failure doesn't have to be the end of our story. As a matter of fact, oftentimes it's the, it's the catalyst to a more faith-filled story. Our life with Christ is one of ongoing transformation. When we fail, when we confess and repent, Jesus promises us to forgive, promises to forgive and restore us. And we see that in Peter's life. We just have to be willing to get back in the saddle and get on with being, both being the church and building Christ's church. Like Pilate, we can't pass the buck. We must decide what to do with Jesus. We aren't saved by grandma's faith. It's our own faith. 
We aren't guaranteed another day to decide to follow him. Today is the day of salvation. Today, every day is the day to choose to acknowledge who Jesus is. We can learn from Pilate's story. The crowd. The crowd that cried out, no, we want Barabbas. The crowd changed their allegiance so easily. No doubt many in the crowd that day that called for Barabbas were some of the, were the ones who just a few days earlier had praised Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. There's a book by, uh, called Gospel Allegiance by a man named Matthew Bates, and he describes allegiance, and I've used that word a couple of times, as faithfulness, reliability, fidelity, commitment. And he makes a strong point in his book that, that more than merely trusting Jesus, allegiance is an ongoing obedience to Jesus as Lord and as our saving King. It means more than just being a fan of Jesus. Yeah, I like him. It means being an unwavering follower. Got a blank to fill in under Jesus on your note sheet. Jesus was determined to fulfill his purpose and glorify his Father. Who do you want to be like from John 18? The Sunday school answer is Jesus. And if, and if you filled out the note sheet, if you look at what the, what's there, Jesus knew his Father. He knew God the Father. He trusted Him. He knew that His purpose was to bring glory to God by redeeming mankind, by going to the cross. He knew that was His purpose. And He was resolved to fulfill His purpose. And we can be too resolved to live a life that brings glory and honor to God. We can be resolved to know God and find freedom and discover our purpose and make a difference. That's our job description. And Barabbas, guilty, but Jesus the Christ, the Lamb of God, took his place on the cross. Jesus takes our place, took our place on the cross. And Barabbas describes us, guilty, deserving of punishment, and undeserving of being set free from death. But just like Barabbas, we too are set free because Jesus took our punishment the difference between us and Barabbas is that he was set free from a physical prison, from a physical death. But we, if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, if we pledge allegiance to him, we are set free from the prison of sin and begin right now. We don't have to wait till we die. We begin right now to live forever, pledging our allegiance to a loving saving King Jesus.
So who are you in this story? I'm a little bit of all of them. But I think we can learn from all the Bible stories, but from this chapter, I hope we can learn ways in which we can fulfill our commitment to, to know God and follow Jesus Christ. I ask the worship team to come back up. Let me close in prayer. If you did your note sheet, I invite you to take that with you this week and to consider all the characters that we talked about today and, and the highs and lows of their, their, the role they played in Jesus' story. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have recorded for us for all time's sake the ways in which you interact with your people, us. And God, especially now as we have walked through the gospel of John and we're, we're walking right up to uh, his, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we today ask you to uh, help us to see clearly what you would have us to see from this account in John's uh, gospel where we see the things that we, are, uh, we fall prey to, we, we, the, the, the sin that we also uh, deal with in our own lives, and, and God, how we can look at another story and say, well, that was dumb, and I, they, should have seen, they should have known better, they should have, they should have uh, reacted differently. God, help us to see that in our own lives so that we can be bold and courageous for you, that we can wear the name of Christ without shame and boldly proclaim it. Help us to be like Jesus most of all in that we see uh, that you love us, that we're in tune with you, Heavenly Father, and that we know we see what you're doing around us and we, and we take action, that we're not just talk, but we are, that our faith uh, becomes uh, evident through our works and that, God, we are indeed the church that Jesus died to establish and the church that you want us to be. So, God, hear our prayer today. God, if there is, a, if there is one in this crowd in the room or one watching online who needs today to decide that they acknowledge who Jesus is as Lord and Savior of their life. May today be the day of salvation for them. Help them not to hesitate. Help them to take action. God, this is our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen.